I'm Ray Rogers. And I'm Brad Kepler. You're listening to Fix This, a podcast exploring tech ideas and solutions to some of today's largest challenges. Cell phones, they're everywhere. And for many listening to today's show, the dial tone and dial-up sounds might sound, well, foreign. In a 2019 publication, Pew Research Center estimates that 5 billion people around the world now have mobile devices with half being smartphones. They become so commonplace in major cities around the world that it's easy to forget what it's like to be unplugged. Almost everywhere you look in a major city, you see people doing things that were absolutely unthinkable just two decades ago. Studio quality photos, real-time video chatting, sending work emails, signing documents virtually, looking up traffic conditions, depositing checks, checking the weather, ordering takeout food, anything you can think of with a smartphone and the internet or data, you can basically do it. Today, we're diving deep into how two organizations use cell phones in innovative ways. From rainforests to farms in Eastern Africa, cell phones aren't just for making calls and filling our time. Rainforest Connection has a mission to preserve the most biodiverse place in the world, the rainforest. They work to prevent illegal deforestation, halt animal poaching, and enable bioacoustic monitoring, all to protect what's left of the rainforest. And their work has massive implications. The most effective way to combat climate change is by preserving the rainforest. Our colleague Randy Larson sat down with Borhan Yassin, COO of Rainforest Connection. In 2011, our founder, Topher White, was volunteering at a Gibbons Reserve in Indonesia. After he got there, he noticed that the team on the ground at that reserve, they were spending most of their time fighting illegal loggers that were on the outskirts of the reserve. They actually had three full-time guards just to protect against illegal logging. And they were walking around, and just within five minutes of the ranger station, they stumbled upon a couple of guys cutting down a tree, and no one could hear them. A chainsaw that was going off five minutes from where the ranger station is. Just how lively and, and loud the forest is makes it very difficult to detect these kind of things. So you figure that, you know, there must be a better solution to this problem than just purely trying to rely on people to protect the forest. I have to applaud you and your team for taking this on because the rainforest is vast. Uh, curious to know how it all works. What we do is we use commonplace mobile infrastructure and uh, we create uh, these real-time audio streams from remote rainforests. We analyze the data in real time on the cloud. We upload that data to the cloud and analyze it. We use machine learning and AI. And essentially what we do is we root out and detect all these sounds that don't belong there, like chainsaws and, and vehicles. Take that information, relay it down to the ground, and partners on the ground, rangers and so on, intervene in real time and stop activities like illegal logging and deforestation or animal poaching from happening. And you're essentially using souped up cell phones to make this happen. So the device that we use is, we call it the guardian, so the protector of the forest. It's made out of a, we'd like to call it an upcycled cell phone. So this is a Android powered device. We install a bunch of custom software on it to make it run the system that does the recording and does all the analysis and the encoding of the data. We take this cell phone, we put an external battery to it. We put a custom power board that we designed to keep the batteries charged. We put it in a weatherproof enclosure to fight against the, the elements um, in the rainforest. And we attach a bunch of solar panels to it to keep it powered. And we take this device, uh, we climb up 150 feet up, up a tree, and uh, we install these devices up there, and they, ha they have a range of up to one square mile. Deforestation accounts for 17% of all carbon emissions. Economic losses are in the trillions in terms of annual GDP. This is all to quote your website. 
Talk about what kind of change you've seen since your team began this work. It is a massive issue indeed. Just to put it into perspective, can you imagine, Randy, that the global carbon emissions from deforestation is more than all of transportation combined? So more than all cars, all trucks, all ships, all planes combined. It's a big, massive issue. And for us, you know, we've been fortunate to have really great partners on the ground uh, that can take the technology that we create and use it to defend and protect the forest. We have one really good example in Peru with an organization called SPDA. Um, it's actually an organization made of a group of lawyers and with the help of another uh, foundation. We created a program with them called the Guardians of the Forest that we launched last year in the south of Peru in an area called Tembopada. Within a month of installing our devices, they managed to catch illegal loggers in the act. So they got an alert, they went out there and they caught the illegal loggers in the act. To add to that, they took the data that was generated from our system. They used that to, as forensic evidence to prosecute these loggers in courts, hopefully preventing them from ever coming back again. Now, surveying such a broad stretch of terrain, it's usually done with satellite imagery, right? What kind of time is your team saving with this real-time boots-on-the-ground solution? Satellite imagery is probably the most popular one. It is usually used to capture before and after imagery. That information is great for awareness, but it's too late to help stop the illegal logging as it happens. Uh, because by the time you generate these after image, the loggers are already gone. If you were to compare our guardian to an alarm system that you may have in your home, satellite imagery would be almost like an alarm system that only notifies you after your house has been robbed. We want to be able to let you know before they actually cause a devastation. Okay, so for those who are listening who might feel somewhat removed from the rainforest, why should we all stop to think about this? I mean, what's the big deal about tree logging? Earlier, we mentioned that deforestation accounts to 15 to 18% of the global carbon emissions. Now, 50 to 90% of that deforestation comes by way of illegal logging. Okay, so a huge portion of that deforestation is because of illegal logging. And if we want to take a step back, let's talk about the trees for a second. The trees are vital. They absorb carbon dioxide. They store that carbon and release oxygen back into the air. When you cut down a tree, again, we're not talking small trees that you may see in your neighborhood. We're talking giant 150, 200 foot trees. There's a big portion of the carbon that's been stored over years and years, hundreds of years in those trees that is also getting released back into the atmosphere. So there's an irrefutable direct correlation between the destruction of the rainforest and global warming. Rainforest once covered something like 14% of the Earth's land surface, and now it's less than 6%. And researchers say that the last remaining forest could be consumed in less than 40 years. If we don't do something about it 40 years from now, we may not have any rainforest whatsoever. Each guardian we install covers up to a square mile of forest. If you look at it and you say preventing logging in that one square mile is basically equivalent to saving 15,000 tons of carbon from being released back into the atmosphere, which is also equivalent to you taking 3,000 cars off the road for a whole year. What small steps can anyone take to change behavior to begin to make a difference in this massive issue? I think first and foremost, buy things like banana, coffee, you know, fruit from sustainable farms and sustainable places. And actually, one of the ways that they can help is they can listen in and help protect the forest themselves. So we actually have an app on the App Store or the Google Play Store called Rainforest Connection App. People can download it. And every device that we put in the field, every one of those guardians, creates a live audio stream that essentially can transport you into the forest. You can become 
part of the protection on the ground. Have you ever tried to make a life plan only to realize halfway through that it's absolutely not what you want for yourself? That's what happened to Kenny Ewan, founder and CEO of WeFarm. So Kenny, can you tell me a little bit about how WeFarm got started? Yeah, so I mean, for me, this is kind of a long story that I'll, I'll try to keep fairly short, but I, I, I trained as an architect in, in, in Scotland, and the only thing I knew when I graduated was I did not want to be an architect. So <laughs> I, I, I ended up, I took a job in South America, actually, based out of Peru, um, you know, helping a, a social enterprise there with construction projects and different projects they were doing. Uh, long story short, they ended up offering me a permanent position. I ended up staying there for seven years. Um, spent a lot of time um, working with indigenous communities, building you know water systems, irrigation systems, fish farms, uh, and really I think that gave me a very different perspective, and um, you know especially on that idea of kind of local knowledge and the, the importance of giving a platform to, to relevant local solutions uh, versus the kind of top-down approach of a lot of the big NGOs and, and governments. Mm-hmm. Um, you know I came across a lot of very big donor projects in, in South America that were essentially sitting unused because they were very disconnected. From the needs of local people. WeFarm is the world's largest farmer-to-farmer digital network that allows farmers to share information via SMS. Think text messages. The kicker? They provide this service to farmers who do not have access to the internet. WeFarm announced their Series A round of funding in October, which is a very exciting time for Kenny and the rest of the team. Over 1 billion smallholder farmers around the world produce almost 80% of the world's food. Many of these farmers live in areas with little to no internet connectivity. Using cell phones, often simple phones with minimal features, WeFarm provides a network of support for these farmers, allowing them to ask questions in their native languages and receive bespoke responses. WeFarm receives over 40,000 questions every day. The interface is simple, but underneath the simplicity of the user experience is machine learning, which solves the complex challenges of fielding questions in languages that otherwise are regionally isolated and not largely studied. There's so much to be gleaned from organic questions. What has WeFarm been able to do with the treasure trove of organic information they receive from their user base? I think at a, at a basic level, what WeFarm is doing is just connecting people together by using machine learning and natural language processing in the middle to facilitate that. So if we have one, million, one person in a million with a question and one person in a million with an answer, you know, we can use machine learning to connect those people together even where they don't have access to the internet. This is almost like a dispersed mentorship model, right? Where it's like you ask a question and then you're paired with somebody who has some answer, expertise or insight into it. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's essentially the whole idea of, of, you know, can we find one person in a million that has a question and, and the one person in a million that has an answer and, and connect those people together? You know, people are much more likely to implement solutions that they hear about from a peer uh, than an expert, um, even when the information is the same. So what does that mean they can ask a question? How are they interacting and who are they interacting with? This could be a farmer who has anything that they want to know about the farm. So it could be as simple as a chicken that isn't laying any eggs or a cow that isn't giving any milk, uh, right through to you know a sophisticated problem about fertilizer for passion fruit or you know anything in between. So that farmer would send us an SMS text message um, outlining their problem in their own local language. When we receive the question, we use machine learning and natural language processing to essentially understand what that farmer is telling us. You know, what is the problem? Where are they? What do they farm, etc.? Uh, and the, the system automatically uses that analysis to, to identify five to ten people in our entire network that we think can answer that one individual question. Uh, and we always aim to get two bespoke answers back to the original farmer uh, in their own language, and even through SMS, uh, and totally for free. 
How big is your network? Because I imagine that as you're sifting through and trying to pair them with someone who can offer insight into whatever their question may be, your network must be very vast. We now have just over 1.8 million farmers uh, using the system. So mostly that's in Kenya and Uganda, which are the two countries we've been in uh, for the most time and represents about 20 to 22% of all the farms in those two countries. Uh, and then we just we just hit 100,000 users in Tanzania where we launched uh, a few weeks ago. Awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. As you're collecting all this data, you have a lot of wide ranging insight into what's happening at you know, a community level, at a neighborhood level, and even at a country level. Is that true? And if so, like, what is that data being used for? I mean, it's it's one of the things I think we're most excited about is looking at the metadata that comes out of, um, you know, WeFarm. So on the average day, we're processing in the region of 50,000 questions and answers, so well over a million a month. We're, we're building a, a mission-driven company here. Uh, and one of the things I've always believed is, is going to lead to the greatest social impact is being able to use that data to, to look into trends across countries on things like disease mapping, drought monitoring, you know, things that can have a really powerful impact on entire countries, even where they're not directly using our system. You might be able to track things like climate change remotely as well, too, right? Because we're seeing sometimes it's related to the spread of disease or without conjecturing too much, some of the same problems popping up across might indicate large scale climate changes across a country. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, going back a few years, one of the reasons that we set up Bee Farm in the first place was, you know, I was working at the time with, with coffee and tea farmers and a lot of the diseases and problems they were seeing were, were happening for the first time uh, in their areas where, you know, as the climate changed, they were, you know, these diseases were coming in from other areas and other countries or, or regions. And, and one of the things those farmers most valued and, and wanted to do was talk to farmers that had been experiencing the problem for the last 20 years and dealing with it on a, on a daily basis. And that was kind of one of the mechanisms we, we set up we farm for. We've talked about one bucket of questions related to disease and um, tangentially climate change. What are some of the other large buckets of questions that you see on a daily basis? The other two things that we see most commonly are, you know, basic animal keeping and, and basic farm techniques. So everything from the spacing uh, for potato plants right through keeping chickens and, and cows and all that kind of thing. Uh, and then I guess the final bucket we see a lot of is is around the commercialization of, of the farm. And ultimately, all of these farmers are, are small business people uh, running a small enterprise uh, and are very interested in the pricing of things. So whether that's for local commodities in the market through to, to products or services they might be interested in or the latest banana seeds that they should be planning and where to access them. So those are the things, you know, obviously millions of things within those kind of fairly large buckets, but most of the questions we get seem to fall into those three areas. Can we talk a little bit more about what the social and commercial impacts or value will be to look at some of the patterns coming out of the data? I mean, it's all organic, right? So people are just asking questions. It's not led and it's not otherwise fed to them to get this information. It's just questions that they're asking. So what can we harness from this data? What can we see? Admit up front that this is still there, that early days for us and in, in, in getting, you know, really powerful analytics out of this. But, you know, for example, we, we've been able to build an algorithm which which tracks the, the local price of commodities such as maize and, and local markets just using, as you say, organic references to, to the price uh, by thousands of farmers across a given day or week. You can start to, to predict where that price is going so that a farmer, you know, may want to travel to a different village or a different district um, in order to sell at a better price. 
you know, those are some of the, the kind of, you know, ways that you'd obviously see that being implemented, um, you know, obviously at a bigger scale, if you can start to, to, to help farmers to, to forecast or understand what the price of their crops is likely to be, then, then you can help them make better decisions around planting or, you know, what to focus on in different fields in their farm. And then, uh, I think the disease angle is one that we're very interested in doing more research on. Um, you know, I think things like, uh, fall armyworm, which has been a, a massive outbreak in East Africa and is you know, affecting the livelihood of, of, of millions of people. You know, if you can start to build algorithms that, that look for symptoms and, and symptom-related words in, in the content that we're seeing and, and be able to almost track or predict where that's likely to go next um, and, and help to share prevention information, you know, those are some uh, pretty powerful things to work on. So switching gears just a little bit, the interface for the farmers using we farm to ask questions is very simple. As you've said, it can be in remote places that have poor or low internet connectivity, but they're still able to ask questions. But I imagine that the technology powering we farm is a little bit more complex. Can you talk about how you built this? We're generally dealing with very short messages, uh, often in languages that nobody else is really building, you know, data science or, or, or natural language processing around. Um, so, you know, we're already working in eight languages in Africa, you know, English and Swahili, obviously, but also regional dialects, um, especially in Uganda. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a real USP for us in that, you know, we're pretty much the only digital service that a farmer can use, A, if they're offline, but B, in, in languages that, that they probably can't use even on Google or, or Facebook at this time. Um, so that's that's one of the, the technological aspects that we've really tried to, to bring to this is, is relevance to, to local people, both through the medium like SMS, but also through the languages they're able to speak. And I think from a backend perspective uh, and technology, you know, we, we obviously don't have a lot of fancy design or, or front ends, you know, apps or, or things that people would more traditionally associate with this, but we do put a lot of um, time and effort into the data science behind it. So a lot of our tech team at WeFarm are you know, looking at a, a kind of backend technology or data science approach to how, how you take a short message from a farmer in a language no one else speaks and get great content back to them. Yeah, so this part of your story fascinates me. Are you working with some data scientists who are fluent in the languages? Most of our data science team is based in London, but they work very closely with their teams in country. Um, so we have offices in Kenya, Uganda, and, and Tanzania, and, and field teams there that you know are local language experts and can help our data scientists to, to understand what a particular term means or um, how it relates to other terms. Um, so, so we, I think, have some pretty exciting collaborations between those, those two areas. Looking forward, what most excites you for WeFarm? I think one of the things we're most excited to be building around WeFarm at the moment is the opportunity for our farmers to participate in more commercial activities, which you know is something they, they, they all tell us they want. So we launched our first marketplace uh, for farmers in January of this year, uh, and have been scaling that over the last few months. Uh, and the value proposition we want to bring to farmers through that is, is um, to get them really good quality, uh, trusted products, so things like fertilizers and seeds. Uh, that are real, which is uh, a major problem in the market, but also use our buying power on behalf of millions of farmers to make sure they can get a much better price than they would normally be able to as individuals. Over time, we want to add a range of, of services to that. And, and what we're most excited about doing next is, is making that a two-way marketplace. Uh, so ultimately, a lot of the farmers that we work with, they're, they're selling cash crops like tea, coffee, sugarcane that, that end up with you know some of the biggest multinationals. Uh, you know, in the global supply chain, a lot of that value is taken in the middle uh, by traders and middlemen. And I think we see a massive opportunity as we grow WeFarm to, to connect those two sides together much more directly and, and bring much more benefit to the farmer. Yeah, giving that voice back to the workers. We've built something really powerful, really sticky, really trusted. We have 2 million people in East Africa that are using it. 
if we can achieve that thesis that we have of, of getting 100 million small-scale farmers working together, you know, we can significantly influence the entire global supply chain. And I think we can do that on behalf of the farmer, which is the most exciting thing. For more information on today's guests, visit rfcx.org and wefarm.org. And as always, a big thank you to our guests, Borhan Yassin and Kenny Ewan, and thank you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this episode of Fix This, remember to rate, review, and subscribe. We'll be here on the next one.